What role does architecture play in creating a national identity? This is Ideas at the House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and in today's episode, Mawa Al Sabuni reflects on the importance of architecture at both a physical and a psychological level. At Antidote 2018, she spoke about her book, The Battle for Home, which features her personal experience living with her family through the Syrian war and the devastation of her home city, Homs. What follows is a fascinating conversation with journalist Fauzia Ibrahim on the challenges, opportunities and possibilities that have come out of rebuilding almost an entire city. History tells us that modern-day Syria was part of the cradle of civilization, and as we from afar sit and watch its slow destruction, I can't help but wonder if we're actually watching the destruction of our own civilization. But for the Syrians who, in the last seven years of conflict or so, have lost their family, their communities, their homes, there's just no time for philosophizing on civilization. All there is is just living from day to day to day. And there's also the brutal reality of rebuilding their lives. Some in refugee camps, uh, some in foreign countries, some, as you will meet today, our guest, in the existing rubble. One Syrian city, famous for its architectural black and white stones has been largely reduced to ruins. Now, Homs became the capital of the Syrian revolution when mass demonstrations against the Assad government uh, began in 2011. It was severely punished for the audacity to demand justice and an end to corruption. Four years ago, the government besieged the city, depriving its citizens of food, medicine, and basic necessities. The rebels gave in and were given safe passage out of homes. The siege was lifted. But to say that peace has returned to homes is not right, because there is no peace when there is no home. Now, our guest this evening, along with her husband and two young children, stayed in their beloved city, and they watched it crumble around them. But instead of seeing darkness in the rubble and conflict, this remarkable woman sees renewed hope for her home, Homs. Please make welcome the author of The Battle for Home, Marwa Al-Sabuni. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> now, take us through what Homs is like now. So I will, I will present uh, images for you uh, to put you in the frame, uh, actually, of what is it, to, was it, what is it like to live in homes. And we will look at the architectural transformation. So uh, some of the images will be about architecture, but I will make it not very architectural for, for you. So. Uh, I'll begin with the destruction, and uh, when you will look at the images of destruction, uh, I just want to refer to the chaos that destruction brings. So many of you have seen those images on your screens for too long now, for eight years. But uh, this is the main square of, of the city, of the city center, uh, where it's, it's marked by the old clock there. But you can see how 
how the cities have peeled off layers of layers of destruction that uh, you don't see on your news usually. I mean, you don't see the, the old, like the old building here next to the new and how both of them have sustained the damages in different ways. And for that, I mean, it's 60% it's of the city now stands in what uh, looks like those images. But on the other hand, we had a, a, a way to reach this loss. And uh, this is what I argue uh, in the book, The Battle for Home. How did we reach this stage of destruction? And I look at architecture as an architectural register of what had happened. So the first phase is just uh, after colonization, after the French colonization. Basically, the French had planned, replanned the Syrian cities. So this is Damascus, where the old Damascus, the old city, was tied, tightly knotted uh, together. Uh, you can look at the streets in white and. The, the courtyard houses and the, the buildings, also, also the public buildings, like the one at the top, it's the Umayyad Mosque. Uh, and while the new urban planning is the Hassaman planning, which is mainly uh, the French way of controlling the city. So there was a plan to expand the city immediately. I mean, it's not based on population or certain needs. It's just, you know, a, a way of unraveling the urban fabric. So what's, what was important in the old architecture, not, not an, the, the nostalgia or something, I mean, some people will say, okay, this, this is a, a romantic way to look at old things, old traditional things. Uh, the important thing uh, in the old city that it was uh, the manifestation of the social fabric that allowed the coexistence of basically different groups, different uh, classes of people. Uh, but for, sorry. Can I, can I just ask, so just looking at that mm. um, earlier, that, that map and, and the earlier design as well of the old souk, yes. uh, are we talking about different ghettos of ethnic society? No, everybody just... We had quarters. For example, uh, the old city uh, also had phases, of course, but I mean, they were built, as you would see, as clusters. So it's a cluster of houses, which basically based on the family units. So families are grouped uh, as clusters. And uh, for, for a colonizational power, they couldn't just, you know, uh, understand it. And they wanted to exclude different uh, groups of people. For example, the Christians should live in this quarter and the Jews should live in this quarter and the Muslim in this quarter. But then they played on another thread, which is the rich should live in there. So the rich were, I mean, uh, the European trend, the westernization of, of the falling Ottoman empire into something that should be modernized and European appealed to certain people who had money, basically. And certain, I mean, the venues where the, the boulevard, the French boulevard, were built for them. Mm. And they lived... Very wide streets and, it, yeah, it looks yeah. Like, almost looks like the Champs-Élysées. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, this is still, till now, the, the most affluent neighborhood in, in Damascus. And this, this story goes on, I mean, to all the other cities. 
but you can see now uh, how the expansion outside of the city. This is the mountain Kasyun, uh, which is a very uh, a land, a natural na a landmark in Damascus, and uh, the expansion. Uh, was planned, the sprawl was planned to, to go into the mountain. I will, I will, you will see now, I will, uh, in the images, I will show how this was transformed into something very ugly. But first, I will show you images from the old city. And they are still standing in Damascus, for example. In, in Homs, they were majorly affected. I mean, most of it was destroyed even before the war. Uh, and this is something also a story that I share in the book. Uh, you can see how small businesses, neighborliness was created in a very harmonious way, mirroring this to the, the urban sprawl that we showed before, that you have two kinds of urban sprawl now, informalities, which is basically, they call it slums. You can look at the, the stripe here uh, with the low rise buildings. The, they are buildings built by, by people informally, so they, they, informally, so they, they don't own them. They don't own, own their houses. Whereas the social housing and the block uh, high rises next to it. So can I, sorry, can I just ask you the question now? Before, when we saw the small streets um, of, of uh, the old Damascus, city, yeah, the old city, obviously people were living very close to each other, and that yes. promoted uh, community spirit. And exactly. You but even, even in the high rises, aren't people living close to each other? So doesn't that have a community spirit as well? Uh, the the population numbers, first of all, then the uh, the way society or community develops. So. When you have the, uh, the, the growth of, uh, of a certain community, it's not just, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it goes in parallel with the way the city builds up and grow as well. So this is kind of like a metabolism. So it's just, you know, it creates, it gives time to relationships to grow along. Uh, whereas comparing to the high rises when people just you know brought from everywhere for a, in, in our in our case in the Syrian case they were called upon from the countryside they left their villages behind and home was was there for them and they you just you know randomly brought people from different walks of lives, the different uh, groups and rituals and customs, and you just block them in, one, in boxes, they don't see each other. Although, I mean, mm. I, I bet many people who live in a block, block building, I mean, not every block building, of course, the kind of block building I'm showing, people just, you know, uh, in, contain themselves to the box they have. You don't have, you don't, you don't meet a neighbor as where, as comparing to the image I showed where you just open the door and you see a neighbor in front of you or walking down the street. So it's a totally different experience. Mm -hmm. So this is a very good example of how the, the sprawl I showed you at the beginning uh, transformed into what we call informalities. And by the way, what was built last, for example, this one, was destroyed first. So informalities uh, make up the, the, the most destroyed areas in this war. So when you say informalities, these are buildings that don't actually have building regulations or legislation? You have no, or? you don't have property rights. Mm. So people here have mixed, mixed, it's a mixed system of property rights. Some people have shares, but some people don't just own 
the walls that they built. Mm. And now it's destroyed. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, we're going through, you will see what does this really mean into, for the re reconstruction now. And you can see how vulnerable those buildings, they just, you know, uh, the, the, the city authority have every right power by rule to just, you know, go and demolish those buildings because they are illegal. Mm. And to the picture here to the left, you could see the Roman columns built, uh, I mean, it's quite a mess mm. how you see me just, you know, layer upon layer of chaos. Uh, mm. And they don't go in, there is no respect to each other as we see in, in the old city, for example. Uh, this is my city, city of Homs, and you can see how Christian and Muslims lived side by side. And just, you know, we had mosques and, and, and churches living as neighbors, as the people. And this is Homs from different view. You've seen Homs destroyed, but this is the part which is not destroyed. But also you can trace the urban planning the same one we've seen in Damascus. So the second phase was of the political and, so, uh, and social and also urban planning uh, transformation phase. It's cementing the colonial legacy, which happened, the, the colonization not only re replanned the city, but also set rules and regulations on how to continue planning. So in that sense, they guaranteed the no-rise uh, state, I mean. And we guarded, as, as Syrians, we, we really, we are guilty of guarding those faults and those wrongful acts and policies and just continuing by our inferiority complex to the, mm -hmm. to the West, basically, to continuing uh, on the same footpath that, we, that was drawn uh, in, in, the, in the 40s. Uh, these are examples of the vacant, uh, vacant blocks uh, of social housing built but doesn't speak to people. It, it, it's irrelevant to the, to, to, to the people's life. And it's, mm. it's a desert of community life. And that's why people just abandon those places and go and build on their own. Mm. The third phase was uh, like a decade before the war. Uh, we, we had... Um, uh, a reformed policy, as they say, and it, it was marked as social liberalism. So capitalism was, was introduced into the communists or the socialist system that used to govern. And in that mix, we had uh, no, no reformed. I mean, we, we, the, plan, the regulations, like I said, had no chance of, uh, of growing any further. Uh, the only thing that was done is just cementing like I said, the colonial legacy, and on top of that, empowering uh, the, uh, the property um, business. Uh, basically, uh, property regulations aimed to make a, an affluent center versus uh, a poor uh, and neglected slum. Um, that's that's uh, the example of slums we were talking mm -hmm. about which was destroyed by the war. Now the talk about reconstruction, of course, is, is, uh, is what we are now replacing the talks about war, basically, mm. even on news. Everybody is interested in, in digging in and just, you know, having a share in the business of reconstruction in Syria. 
So who are the players, let's say? Uh, currently, there are two players. Uh, the, the companies, the, the, the building companies, who are in the business of selling, selling, selling and buying at the moment. So no actual work is happening on ground. But also, on the other hand, there is the aid industry and the NGOs and organization, which we will look at. But first, uh, I'm sharing this image of removing the informal areas you've seen. So I told you that most of these areas were erupted in violence and had their share of destruction. And that tells you something. That tells you about the power of social fabric and urban fabric and how it could crumble if you know, just, you know, it becomes an arid land ready to be ignited at the slightest you know, spark. Uh, this is the alternative that is being on the table now. So it's an actual project in Damascus as well which is uh, called Marota City. And uh, believe it or not, it's an area that wasn't destroyed by, by war, but people were evacuated in the middle of war, in the middle of displacement crisis, and uh, modernity was, uh, was uh, the sellout. They said, okay, leave your houses, you will get shares in, in, the, in the towers and in, in the modern uh, shopping malls and etc. And uh, this is the kind of designs they approved. And I, I should say that it's an area that was called Damascus Orchards. So it was all farming lands with, uh, with parts of the Ghouta, if you heard of it. It's the green belt around Damascus where every kind of production that fed the city and the countryside was there. So another area that resembles this is Baba Amr, which I also share the narrative and the story of in, in the book. Uh, uh, it's also uh, partly rural and urban uh, neighborhood adjacent to the city. And this is an example of the destruction that happened there. It, w it was one of the first neighborhoods that erupted in violence in Homs. You can see how, I mean, the farms we were talking about, and this is uh, an oil pipe that uh, reportedly was, was basically destroyed by the rebel at the time. Uh, this is the government official plan, which was issued to replace, uh, replace basically Babambr. And I'm sharing here a proposal of my competition design also. Uh, I've, I've had the chance of participating in a UN Habitat competition at the time in 2014, and uh, the competition was aimed at uh, rehabilitation of mass housing around the world because it's, it's a global problem for, for everybody now. So I, uh, I designed what I call tree unit, which is a unit based on courtyard houses that could just go on multiple levels and grow into uh, what I call just, you know, a tree unit, which, which, is, which is able to grow architecturally in the meaning that you could add houses, courtyard houses, uh, to the upper levels, and also to have connected, to, to be connected together that could go uh, and grow urbanly in a horizontal way. So just, uh, sorry, yes. to go back to that picture before, um, yeah. because 
for those of us who perhaps are not from an architectural background, to many of us that would just look like apartments that, that we have now. Exactly. The same sort of apartments that you said before would actually stop people from uh, communicating with each other, mixing with each other. So how would your plan yeah. help to integrate Bas more communal spirit? Yeah, basically, um, basically, apartment. This is, I mean, this is really important because people, when they they hear about the comparison between the old and new, they just would assume that uh, this is an attack on the new and on on the basically the spirit of an era, which is not which is not true. Mm -hmm. uh, the the essence of this message is to look at the past. As a source of uh, a source of lessons, basically, and learn what had worked, what was right for people. And the case in the case of Baba Amr, uh, I studied the social makeup and the means of living, the economic, uh, basically, the economic ways of life. And people, as I said, they had uh, a combination between the urban and the rural. So they weren't farmers. But also, they weren't just you know business businessmen. They had in between. They had the courtyard housing, but also not not in a way that it's flat. It's just one one story level. Just they had three and four stories mm. where they just can't have access to garden. And this is what I've tried to do with the with the tree block. Is just to have. Uh, an apartment that had courtyard. Each an, each apartment had courtyard, and each courtyard is is uh, doesn't view the other. Which privacy for the community is very essential there, so doesn't view the other, and the the makeup of the apartment is is matches the way of living of the people. This the same movement inside the apartment, mm. but it can go, go. I mean, it can build up mm. in a way that sun and air and open courtyards still accessible in the same block. The second thing, the second important thing is that uh, to have, a, like we said, the, to have the proximity that allow the, 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 net, the netting of the urban fabric. And I was inspired by, uh, before I show you this, I was inspired by what we call street bridge. Uh, we will come to this in the images. And to show how, I mean, the street bridge is, is a connection between two blocks and it overshadows the street underneath. So this is what the, the, the multipli uh, multipli multiplication of the units does. Mm. Uh, so, but people, when, uh, when saw the proposal, made uh, a very interesting comparison with Mushi Safadi's UN, uh, uh, with the Montreal Habitat uh, 67, which looks like this. Of course, it looks really, at <laughs> the first sight, really res resembles this. But I argue that it's, it's not that, I mean, my inspiration was uh, from the traditional traditional culture, and my proposal is not based on accumulating uh, cubes, rather just netting and having uh, a multiplication that resembles, like I said, uh, resembles the street bridge, this one that we had in the old city, which allowed basically fluidity between the blocks and the apartments you had before. So it's totally, I mean, it's different design approach and it's based on different uh, understanding. Uh, you can see, I mean, these are... The other example of the old city, which was very in inspirational, is Hamsa Souk. And it's an example of reconstruction because, because this site 
was uh, destroyed and was was named uh, like a, a pilot project for reconstruction in Syria, which has a very interesting story, by the way, because it was uh, run by, by I mean, it was uh, directed by the UN Habitat, mm. basically, the, the, pro, uh, the reconstruction, and which had a very interesting story. The soup was, in this case, uh, where it was massively destroyed, everything was punctured, flamed, burned out. Uh, and uh, my husband, by the way, was the responsible architect for reconstruction, so I had these insights from the insider story. Uh, the, uh, I'll show before and after. This is before and this is after as well. So they started by removing the rubble from, mm -hmm. from this, which was enormous. And my husband found inspiration Again, this is a story of how to look at the past and create something new. Uh, he was inspired by shrapnel, uh, the shrapnel effect on the roof, which is metal roof. And this is the souk in the past. It had no roof, you could see. And this is the old destroyed structure, which was very threatening for people to, come to, to pass through because it was collapsing. So this is before and this is after. The, the, the design, as you see, is, is a mesh that could, I mean, it, it, it captured the, 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 the essence of the arched first virgin from the old souk, and then it, the, the shrapnel effect that you've seen. Mm. And people were just very impressed by, by this experience until, uh, unfortunately, a corruption scandal happened in the UN, which is happening all the time now in, in a war zone. Uh, and uh, they just, you know, they stopped the funding basically because of the reports. My husband just reported how money and how, fund, mm -hmm. how funds that were supposed to go in there were going into pseudo projects. And uh, they just, you know, uh, started working. I mean, the, 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 the project basically deviated mm. from, from the path that was meant to be. And uh, I'll show you this again. And basically, just, you know, they started just doing another roof. Mm. And uh, it's just it's still empty. Only this street, it's just, you know, 4,500 shops in this souk, it's, it's a massive location. And only this street that was done properly was inhabited uh, again. Mm -hmm. So this is also an indication how people are willing to come back, but also, I mean, the power of architecture, of how when you do something properly and in a way that people could relate to, they will come and they will just, you know, life can go very fast and can go move forward very in a very quick way and a very an unexpected way. Uh, but unfortunately, this is something I just, you know, I'm very critical of, of the aid industry that basically, mm. I mean, we can talk about it mm. in a while. And they just, you know, this is another example of, of the corruption here. They just, you know, spend money on painting, <laughs> just painting fences. <laughs> and just installing statues that just, you know, they were just... What is that statue? Dragon. It's so irrelevant. It's so irrelevant. Who makes these decisions? 
good question because this is the, <laughs> this is the, the main the main problem that they assign basically employees that they have no capacity and no experience to lead uh, the teams. For example, if they are going, which had happened, they're going to rehabilitate a hospital. They don't bother and have uh, a medical committee or a doctor. An accountant will be the, the team leader and he will make the calls. And there is no accountability system. So corruption is, is living its prime days there because it's, you know, just, you know, Funded. And you say the aid industry is is, is involved in this? Do yeah, they it, it, put these people in positions? Or? I mean, it's the system. It's how the system is built. I mean, this is how uh, the international aid organizations are built. Primarily here we're talking about the UN. Sorry if we have any one of the UN, <laughs> UN here in the audience. But it's, it's something that is just, you know, so disappointing for people now. To have statue like this, built in a public park under the theme of rehabilitation of a public park. And believe it or not, the public park now is locked down because it's too, uh, too uh, expensive and too sophisticated to be visited by people. <laughs> yeah, and, so, uh, and by rehabilitation, they just you know, cut down trees to rehabilitate the public park. And they just, you know, this is another, another example. It's just, you know, they had uh, this uh, artwork Mm. If we can call it mm. this way, of mosaic at the at some certain walls, and so it's just these will go to you. They will reach you as uh, um, reconstruction projects. This is a planting pot. <laughs> so the remains uh, here. I mean, uh, this series of images to look at what remains uh, in Syria. And just, you know, to see how the old and the new, the destroyed. And when you the, say this is what remains in Syria, what are we looking at here? Is this Damascus or Homs? Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll give you context. Yes, you're sure. This is Damascus. And this is a Damascus as well. Still Damascus. This is Homs. This is one of the scandalous buildings in Homs, which is, uh, takes a, a huge amount of, uh, of space and it's vacant public building which has been never used. This is uh, the remains of a river, unfortunately as well. And this wall there is built for the protection of the hotel that houses the international the organization. The UN. No, the, the, all the UN basically. And for me, this is, <laughs> this is the pavement where, I mean, the city looks like this pavement from, to me. I don't know, it's just patched and has, uh, this is how people just made sheds to, to open shops and lived in places, in houses usually not being occupied. And this is uh, at, the, at the old souk in, in, uh, in Damascus. It's this straight Roman street that has the Roman remains. And people have built around these ruins, is that it? Yes, I mean, this is, this is corruption in, in, in municipality, in, uh, in city authority. It just, you know, it tells you how, how chaotic things can be. And in, in this sense, you can, you can have, have an outlook of 
how, how difficult it is to just reorganize this. Mm. And because, I mean, this is a very, thank you for asking this question because uh, people now in this, in this image, for example, we have no pride in, in the history and the accomplishment that we had in our civilization, in the, all these centuries of civilization. And we, when you reach this point, you reach it through the way the city treated you. So how the city treated people is how the people are treating the city now. And it's all, it all lies on the shoulders of architects and city planners, how they you know, isolated people from the city mm. and from their heritage and from basically from what means to be at home. Mm. And speaking of heritage, this is how heritage is being treated as well. This is uh, the Tkia Suleimania, which is a complex in Damascus, uh, uh, built by Memar Suleiman, uh, who's a very famous architect of, uh, of uh, the Sultan Suleiman. And uh, just, you know, just building those, I don't know <laughs> what are these, <laughs> I mean. Is that foundation to stop it from falling? Yes, or? yes it's just support. Are there plans to reinforce it further or they're just gonna leave the support there? This is, has been, I mean, this has been standing for years in this way, it's, right. it's not temporary, it's just permanent. <laughs> and also here, uh, the, the artisans and the tradesmen were evacuated from the complex and were just sent off outside of the city because they don't look civilized. Yeah, a civilized city, apparently, a tourist city should have the Four Seasons Hotel. Those are interesting for me because you could see the, the European style, uh, earlier European style uh, building next to, to the block, cement blocks, the faceless cement blocks. Mm. And this is how people just, you know, coped with the war. So it's partially destroyed, but people came back and they are drawing aubergines there, if mm. you are wondering what's that and um, just give you a sense of how people are moving on, just, you know, building, like I said, sh temporary sheds and temporary stalls to, to open small businesses and uh, to end up with a hopeful <laughs> note after all this grim. Uh, this is an image that, I mean, I find, I find it very hopeful because children are just, you know, so resilient, resilient, sorry, and they just, you know, continue to play despite all this and continue just to, to live through it all. And yes, and there are glimpses of a peaceful living there mm. that I wanted to end up with. So yeah, that's it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing with us the uh, images uh, out of Syria because a lot of the times we only really see the destruction and the war and, yeah. and, and the fighting and the conflict and we get that from the news cycle, um, but giving us um, an, a very unique insight into what's actually happening is very interesting as well. Um, congratulations on a wonderful book. Thank you. Um, I think I spoke to you last night and I said to you, I've never been to Homs, I've never yeah. been to, to Damascus, but the description in, in this book 
is so vivid, it's so amazing that um, after reading it, I went to bed and I actually dreamt of the city in color and I could actually see it. So, so thank you, thank you so much for Thanks. bringing the city alive. I wanna read something that you say here. Uh, Today, the old city and its surroundings are beyond rescue. Its way of life has been demolished along with its buildings. People have lost their homes, their furniture, their clothes, even their photos. They have lost their jobs, their churches, mosques, and medical facilities. Above all, people have lost each other. The love and harmony that existed between communities and religions has been shattered. The wounds that have been opened in this area are much deeper than bullet holes. You say there is optimism in your heart and in the way you see your old city, what sort of a Syria do you think will emerge? Even though there's still fighting that's happening now, what sort of a Syria will emerge? I can't predict what kind of Syria will emerge, but I know the Syria I'm seeing. The Syria, the Syria that is still, li- steam, still living, which is part of this, but partly this, and partly the Syria that used to be it used to be there. I mean, that they still people can live with each other. You still meet people who are generous at heart. You still meet people who are willing to sometimes even risk their lives to uh, to help a fellow citizen or neighbor. So there is. I mean, for example, when the mortars used to land uh, next home. Uh, it's it's so so admirable and so touching and heartbreaking at the same time to see young people just leaving everything and rushing into the spot where the the the, the bomb landing landed and to help others despite knowing that a second one will follow and many of them lost their lives while just trying to help others so of course there is hope i mean there is no, I, I, I can't think of place on earth that, that didn't have uh, suffered from war and from civil war, although not in very recent history. In the recent history, we dominate the news, obviously, but I mean, uh, everywhere uh, in the World War I and II, uh, before that, um, everybody has, has suffered, every city has suffered, people killed each other on, on on a very wrongful basis, but then people have found peace and found common existence. Now, you say that the Syrian war is entering to its eighth year already. At the beginning of the war, what made you and your husband decide to stay throughout the war? Because you, you didn't know how long this was going to last, and nobody you stayed knows, with two yeah. very young children. Yeah, nobody knew, and uh, we weren't alone. I mean, uh, although many fleed, Many, I mean, just, you know, the city just was like in, a, in some kind of laundry washing, just, you know, replaced faces and replaced families and whole communities really were just, you know, replaced. Some people fled and others fled from other places and were placed in the same place. So what made us stay just, you know, it's the most asked question I get. And, and the fact that we, you see, people say, oh, uh, compare, compare death, put death in, in, on the same scale with dignity. And uh, to, to get out of your house means that you will sacrifice your dignity, and which 
many, unfortunately, many Syrians had to do and still suffer uh, the unfortunate consequences. So, but again, I, was, I wasn't forced in the meaning that uh, other, other Syrians maybe had to because despite all the dangers, despite living on a battle line and uh, having all sorts of life-threatening um, weapons mm. actually just going into our house, we, we still had our roof standing. And it's, it's, it's something that not every Syrian had. Uh, so to decide to stay, just, you know, I couldn't imagine myself and my family uprooted and living, uh, floating uh, in some, somewhere, just surviving. It's very interesting at some point um, in the book, you talk about the Syrian saying, one who has no old has no new. And you say that this actually refers to Syrian refugees who are starting out in a different country as well, a, a different life because there is no history, their history is not there in a new country, so they can't have a new life? It's the struggle of every refugee, basically. I mean, every refugee is forcefully, sometimes, I mean, some refugees, to be, to be honest, that some Syrian refugees cho chose to leave. Some of them just were looking, as they said, for a better future. Mm. Um, I mean, we can go to our, my family and I, our way of approaching this, but I mean, the struggle of every refugee is, is the loss of home. And they don't recover usually from, nobody recovers at first generation from the loss of home. You would see it in every conversation that they don't feel I mean, they, they, they are searching for home in every way possible, and they hope that their sacrifice would just, you know, benefit their, the second generation. So they will say, I hope my, ch my children will, will find home here. And sometimes even the children struggle and continues to the third generation. So I don't think any refugee uh, live, uh, lives without, you know, this this struggle of finding home. By extent of that, it's not just searching for home, but it's searching for identity as well, isn't it? This is what I mean by home, because home is identity. And um, this is basically what has been discussed in the book, is how architecture contributes in creating identity, because I, it's the reflection of how we express ourselves. And when you have no expression of yourself, you live in a house that doesn't express you. You walk in a street that doesn't relate to you. You, you, you live in a community that has no, uh, you have no ties to. You lose your identity. And in that sense, you don't have a home either, despite you, you are living at home. So the community in which you live now, the people who have stayed throughout the war, do you think that's a stronger community now that you've Not gone necessarily, through? no. Uh, we are living in a chaos now. Like I said, I mean, just uh, it's a chaotic place. It's a place in flux. So we can't expect much of, of a place that keeps changing faces now and keeps, I mean, everything is in, in flux, economy, policy, uh, society. So it's, it's a phase of, uh, for us, for me as a choice, it's a, it's a, it's a phase of uh, patience. Mm. So, yeah. Did at any point during the war, did you and your husband ever say we should have left? 
you know, no. And because after the, the, the rational discussion, like the one we shared now, the, which is safe, which is safe, which is, which is future, what is important, all of these questions, uh, you find, you get connected to the hard discussion. You get to, you get to this is the place I love. This is the, the place I belong to, and this is the place I would like to contribute to. And in that sense, you, you begin to attach to home, basically, in an even stronger way, because it's in a struggle. We know that a lot of people have left homes, and we know some have returned as well. What are they returning to? Give us a, like a picture of what it's like. First of all, they are returning home. And it's not, it's, it's not a phrase, it's just, it's not something to take lightly to say there is no, I mean, there is no place better than home because you find safety, you find familiar, familiarity, you find com remains of community, you find memory, which is very important. Uh, but also people are going back for practical reasons. So uh, some are fleeing from isolation, some are fleeing from loneliness, from, some are fleeing from bad treatment or racism, and some are coming back because, uh, because they've lost, I mean, the, economically, it's, it's, uh, it's not functioning anymore. They've lost all of their savings, they've sold homes, they've sold cars, and went spend it on this expensive journey in uh, an economy which is, very, uh, very, I mean, different from, from the economy of, of Syria, so it's, everything is more expensive. Mm. And in that sense, it's, it's, it's just, you know, more practical to get, get back home. And more importantly, they find, found no jobs. Uh, so to wait without a job at home is better than to wait without a job with all these uh, circumstances. For those of us who've, who've never been in, in this situation, uh, either during a conflict or post-conflict, um, and, and I met one of the audience members outside and who wants to know what daily life is like. Is there internet? Is there power? Is there water? Do you have to run from snipers? What is the safety situation? We had situation? all this. Yeah, we had all this. We had, we had all these shortages and all these ch challenges. We had the snipers shooting at us. Uh, uh, literally, I mean, my husband and I were crossing the street and one sniper just, you know, shot in between the legs. And uh, people died, children died of snipers, women, men, everybody died uh, because of snipers, mortars, uh, tanks, uh, uh, internet breakout, uh, power cuts, uh, power collapse for days, uh, water cuts also for days, then they come back fuel, winter, I mean, whole winter without heating. I mean, we had a couple of winters where we had snow outside and no heating inside, and also people just, you know, suffered immensely from this. Mm. Uh, and when you live in a war, the, the, all the circumstances, I mean, all the odds uh, hap I mean, happen to work against you. For example, after, let's say, um, shortage of water, cut of water, like for three or four, five days, which can be nerve-wracking. And I mean, then the water comes and people start a kind of celebration. And because it's fro freezing outside, it was all the pipes in the city frosted and 
overnight broke, and then the water again. We had no order, so it's just, you know, <laughs> the hope and disappointment, hope and disappointment, it's just, it's just, can be, I it's mean. never ending. Oh uh, yeah, but I mean now, so to give you the whole picture, now just uh, uh, in my city, for example, which is central in Syria and to the south, to the coast, all of these cities are conflict-free. <laughs> and uh, the electricity, a year from now, we have, um, regular electricity, no, no more uh, extended power cuts. <clears throat> Some days we enjoy a whole day with electricity. Uh, and uh, so, and water is steady, <coughs> sorry. Internet is uh, acceptable and we have no break, breaks, but I mean, the connection could be sometimes bad. Uh, Same in Australia. Yeah, I noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's just, uh, yeah, so life is just, you know, it's not, uh, like I said, it moves on. Mm. Mm. I think many of us want to know, how do you retain hope in such a situation? In one word, it's faith. So, uh, in, my, in my case, I mean, and, and this is something that even you notice in, in the Syrian society as well. Whether Christian or Muslim, people is just, you know, uh, you have faith and you, it, it dominates conversation. And you hear people even after death of a family member. Uh, I know it will sound for some people ridiculous, but people just thank God. Mm. And, and, and they submit to, to the, the, let's say, the destiny they are living in. And they continue to be hopeful and continue to be uh, patient despite all the challenges. So I think it's it's a very uh, it's a very good. I mean it's it's at the core of this society, and people who come and visit would be surprised or impressed sometimes by two qualities they would notice in Syria, which is first hospitality, and the second is uh, resilient uh, resilience, as they say, mm. and both of them depend on this uh, tenant, basically. Um, I just want to pause there and just remind the audience, um, I'm about to take questions now, so if you have any questions that you would like to put to Marwa, you can make your way to, we've got three microphones here. There's microphone one, two, uh, and three. So if you've got any questions, start making your way now. In the meantime, I'm going to throw one last question to you. I want to read out something from your book that really struck me. Um, you say, I could never wish for things to go back to the way they were. To an era when I, like hundreds of thousands of disoriented young people, felt stuck in time and space, waiting for nothing to happen, waiting as everybody, consciously or unconsciously, was waiting. I was jailed behind the bars of nothingness. Yeah. Do you think anything's changed now? Radically. Radically, I mean, uh, basically this so is... So there's no nothingness now, you, you now see more hope? Uh, Even after all the violence? Because I found a home. Mm. I've, um, yeah, ironically enough, I found a home in the war, or because of the war. Mm. Mm. Very interesting, you're a remarkable woman, Marwa. Um, anyone has any questions? Can I see any questions? Oh, I think... Hi. Hi. Thank you, first of all, for coming and talking about your plight. I think it's very brave of you to stay back. 
I come too from a family from war-torn, from Greece. My mother had suffered, um, you know, the Civil War and the Second World War. And I've recently bought my grandfather's home and rebuilding it. And I've got people around me, my family, saying, um, look, why don't you just throw it down and build something new, you know? And I can understand where you're coming from, keeping that tradition and culture. Uh, what I want to know is the government, from what you say, has a lot of power on um, what structures you want for your home, like for all the you know, Syrians living there. Is there a way for you, have they given you the opportunity to form maybe um, communities within your neighbourhood where you can form committees to talk to the government of the plans that you want? Or maybe sort of... You're speaking about democracy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, in your, in your village and in your neighbourhood, there's always a fight. Like, I know from, from my village down in the south, there's always that problem. But how do you cope now rebuilding your home for your kids? What kind of a home do you want for your kids now in Syria? And what do you want to leave behind for them? Do you want to build a home with the safety shelter now since the war? What do you want for your kids? What do you see in the future? Where's your aim for your kids and your family? Okay, uh, I'll start with the shelter you're asking. I mean, I, I think many people now, you know, would uh, design their homes. And this is something that my husband and I discussed that the, I, we think that the types of building would change after all the horrors of war because maybe people just, you know, consider building some, some kind of basement or something to, to take shelter in. Uh, but it's very difficult to predict a style now because architecture is, is not about ready-made solutions. And uh, I think the most failing examples is the ready-made solutions when you just, you know, uh, this is, I mean, how mass production uh, works, that, that you just design something that fits all, one size that fits all. And in, in, in the case that, for example, in the rebuilding of Syria, this is exactly what we should avoid, that we should look at each neighborhood, because we have so many complexities. Like I uh, like shared in the presentation, we have a legacy, a layer over layer of something that had worked and something that had not. And to distinguish between those in each context, with each neighborhood and each city and each town is, is, is a lot of work, but it, it, cannot, be, uh, it cannot be made as a ready-made that could be shared now. It should, it should be based on a case-by-case case, case case scenario. Um, I have one last question to you, and I realize we're running out of time uh, here, and that is, at a time when people are coming back to their bombed-out homes and, you know, this food shortage, water shortage, electricity shortage, how much of a priority is architecture? Um, zero, of course. Mm. But it's like... But isn't that fair then? Like, if we, people just don't have... I'm not asking people to be... Energy, I'm not asking people that. at the... Uh, for example, for instance, I mean, let's start by this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not speaking to people in war and I'm asking them to just, you know, let go the morning of your son and let's talk about your home and how to... No. But uh, as, I mean, as the case of any... This is, by, by, this is an example of, that my husband gave, which I found it very descriptive, that in a battlefield, you have a soldier and you have a nurse 
and you have uh, you know uh, somebody who's working with 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 um, supplies you cannot say to to the doctor who is you know stitching wounds stop this because a war is raging and somebody is is on the front everybody i i'm as an architect have the duty to work as the nurse and the doctor is working on the back, in the backstage of war. And I'm not asking people to let go of their positions, for example, and, and join me in. But it's a discussion that can happen now and must happen now because other, I mean, pal parallel discussions are happening in, in Geneva, are happening in, you know, in, in, in Belgium, happening on, in different capitals in the world that is planning to have a share in, in, our, in my country. And this is something that we have to, as Syrians, be aware of. And it's, it's time that we raise this discussion now. And Syrians need to be a part of that conversation because it is their country. Yeah. It is our country and, and, and the international powers, since the colonization of this region always had uh, an interest in this region and uh, reconstruction for them is another arena for interest and we should we should as Syrians be aware of that and know right from the start what where are the red lines for us because they will be stepped on if we didn't realize this early on Marwa, you are a remarkable voice of hope for Syria. Mm -hmm. Thank, you. thank you. Please thank Marwa al Thank you so much. That was Marwa al speaking with Fazia Ibrahim at Antidote 2018. And if you liked that talk, more podcasts and videos from the festival are available at sydneyoperahouse.com ideas. <laughs>